Good morning, Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. Um, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll have someone come and give you a Bible right now. And uh, as you're opening it, go ahead and open to Colossians 1, and we'll be rooted there. But before we dive in, I want to tell you a story about how a small Turkish Muslim taught me one of the most important things I've ever learned about Jesus. I lived in Turkey for three years. In the middle of that time, our daughter was born, uh, and it was quite a terrifying experience, if you can imagine, going through the whole pregnancy and medical process in another country, hearing in a foreign language what you're supposed to do. And we were obviously nervous that our daughter was going to be born in a country that we didn't know without family around us. But there was one person who put us at ease. It was Dr. Ebru. Dr. Ebru was five foot nothing. She was probably the weakest person I knew. But she was one of the most powerful people in our lives at that time because she wasn't just a doctor to us, but she actually entered into our lives and was so committed to us that she said, if you ever need anything, I'm here for you. I will give you my home phone number. You call me and I'll be there for you. And we didn't think we would need it. Our daughter was born a beautiful, sweet, baby with the most kissable cheeks that you could ever imagine. And for weeks, we were just adoring our daughter and dreaming about and talking about what life would be like in the future as we raised this family together. One of the nights that we were talking about our future, I looked over and Jenny seemed a little pale. It was several weeks after our daughter had been born, so I didn't think it was anything pregnancy-related. But I looked over, and she excused herself from the table. And I went back a few minutes later, and I just said, Jenny, are you okay? She said, I'm fine. I trusted her. I'm holding our daughter in my hands. And then I come back a few minutes later, and I ask, Jenny, are you okay? And I don't get an answer. I open the door, and Jenny is unconscious on the floor. She's bleeding. She's hemorrhaging. And I have no idea what to do. So I pick up the phone and I call the only person I trust in that situation, which is Dr. Ebru. And Dr. Ebru says, get to the hospital immediately. So I call my friend over, uh, who's one of my best friends. He lives in the area. We physically pick Jenny up. We carry her down four flights of stairs. We catch a taxi, and if you know anything about Turkish taxis, they drive like maniacs, and it's very dangerous. But in that moment, we needed their expertise. <laughs> they got us to the hospital quicker than you could ever imagine. And when we pulled into the hospital, in the driveway of the hospital was Dr. Ebru waiting there for us, waiting there for my unconscious wife. They, they take Jenny. And as they're wheeling her away for her procedure, uh, they say, this should be about 30 minutes and you'll hear from us. So I go in the waiting room and I'm holding my daughter. I'm grateful for Dr. Ebru. The 30 minutes comes and it goes. Then it gets to 60 minutes. Then it's an hour and a half 
And I start looking at my daughter thinking, is my daughter ever going to have a memory of her mother? My mind starts going to the darkest places two and a half hours, three hours. And by that point, I am begging God with every set of footsteps that I hear in the hall that it would be Dr. Ebru wheeling my wife in. And finally, after three and a half hours, I see Dr. Ebru's exhausted but pleased face. She says that Jenny's going to be okay. And I'm sitting there with my wife and my daughter, and we have been rescued by this doctor. And as I'm talking to the nurse, she lets me know that there's really only one doctor who is capable of doing the procedure that Jenny needed in their hospital, and it was that doctor, Dr. Ebru. And she had worked a full shift that day of delivering babies and gotten to home, went to bed, and then took, woke up took my phone call, and made it there. And had it not been for that one doctor who could perform that procedure and her sacrificial love to wake up and to come and be there for us, her movement towards us, my wife would not be here. And today as we continue in our series on countercultural convictions, we're talking about we're talking about these things in our culture that often will get rejected, these beliefs that we hold as a church that are core to who we are, but that go against the grain of culture and aren't very popular right now, but they are absolutely life-giving. And one of those things is that Jesus is the only way to God, that he is fully God, fully human, and he is the only one in whom salvation is found. But when we talk about this, this is not an abstract theological concept. It's not an apologetics concept. It's a declaration that there is only one rescuer, only one physician who is able to come and rescue us and save us. And the very act of what Dr. Ebru did that day was a living analogy of who Jesus is as the only physician that could come and rescue and save so this morning, I'm just going to make two points. That Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from our slavery to sin. And that Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from the tyranny of the idols that tend to enslave us in life. So let's start with number one. Jesus rescues us from our slavery to sin. The passage that we read in Colossians uh, is, is a part of this prayer that you find in the book of Colossians. It opens up with this robust prayer, and it's a prayer about how Paul is praying for the Colossian church, this small church in this Roman city with a whole plethora of gods that were demanding their allegiance, and Caesar, who was demanding the allegiance of the Christians. It's a prayer that they would know God's will and that they would be sustained in giving their allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. And the prayer ends with this rich statement about who Jesus is, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this passage is beautiful. It's beautiful for a number of reasons, but this is essentially Paul reminding them that 
the incredible work of Christ is one of delivering us from the slavery of sin. And that Christ is the only one who can do it. The imagery here would immediately bring to mind the Exodus narrative in the Old Testament. This is language of Exodus. And, and the reality was that, that God's people were enslaved by Pharaoh. They were under the tyranny of this slave driver who took away their freedom and took away uh, their connection to God, took away all aspects of their flourishing. And the picture that we get here is that we as God's people are being delivered away from sin in the same way that God's people in those days were being delivered away from the tyranny of the Egyptian ruler of Pharaoh. Paul is acknowledging that apart from God, we are slaves to sin and darkness, but God has moved towards us when we couldn't move towards him and rescued us from the darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son, where we are forgiven, where we know the Father, where we can flourish and, and connect to the, the, the things that he created us to be and the things that he created us to do. Now, one of the things that you might uh, see here is that that there's this word redemption. Redemption, we should know what redemption means, right? Because we're named redemption as a church. But it's a beautiful picture here. With the, the word really calls to mind the social custom of that day of someone stepping in and purchasing someone who was a slave out of slavery to restore them back to their family. And what Christ does is for people who were because of our sin, stuck in slavery, we are redeemed and rescued by the, the resources that Christ has. He pays the penalty and he draws us back to himself. Now, oftentimes when we think of sin, you know, it kind of becomes this cutesy little thing. This, this word has lost its potency. You think of like cake and it's, oh, it's sinfully good, right? But the language of sin is a powerful language in scripture. Herman Bovink, uh, a Dutch theologian, uh, describes sin this way. He says, sin is a power that organizes everything God has created into rebellion against him. This isn't just a doing one little bad thing here. This is a, sin is a functional middle finger and a rejection of God. Colossians 1.21, it uses the language that we were alienated and hostile in mind toward God doing evil deeds. It's not just that the, we did some bad things, but the bad things are actually driven by a disposition, a nature, uh, a, a slavery in which we have to sin, where it drives us away from God and the way, uh, away from his intentions for the world. But in the image of the Redeemer, of redemption, of, in order to buy someone back from slavery, they needed the resources. They needed enough money to be able to do it. And when we ask, what are the resources that Jesus used to buy us back from the slavery of sin? Paul, over and over again, points to Christ. Christ is the payment. His currency is the life that he lived, the perfect li life that he lived on our behalf. Where we couldn't be perfect and righteous, he was perfect and righteous, and then credits that to us. He lived the life we could not live. And then on his death, in his death, he dies the death we deserve. He dies on the cross, 
paying for our sins and allowing for us to be brought back to God. And in his resurrection, he declares that death is dead. It no longer has power over us, and it no longer is eternal. But through union with Christ, we step into eternity with him as people who are bought back into God's family and fully reconciled to God. How do we have access to that payment? It is not by our works. It is not by our effort or our background or our moral standing, but it's only through faith in Christ. What we needed on that day with Dr. Ebru is we didn't need some better tools so that we could do surgery on Jenny. We didn't need uh, some advice from an advisor or a YouTube video to help us out. We needed Dr. Ebru to move towards us. And if Dr. Ebru didn't move towards us in that day, we were done. And what happens in Christ is that he moves towards us as the only physician capable and able to heal us of our sin, to deliver us from the slavery of our sin, and to bring us back to life with God. Essentially, Paul, in his own language, what he's, he's doing is he's echoing this statement in John 14, 6 that we've heard over and over again, that, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That the only way to be reconnected to God, the only way to be healed is through Jesus. Now, some might bristle at that statement. This is where it's kind of countercultural. We, we like in our pluralistic world to talk about how there are many ways to God. There are many, uh, just you do you, whatever feels best to you. Everything's, every religion's basically saying the same thing. But ultimately, it is not. The religions of the world say you must work your way to God. The gospel says that God has moved toward you and through the work of Christ has come toward you. But I think part of the reason why we bristle at the idea of exclusivity, the idea that there's only one way, is because when you hear of the word exclusivity, it kind of brings to mind some images that I don't think are appropriate for understanding the gospel. When I hear of exclusivity, I think of the country club. And every, if, you, if you belong to a country club here, I'm sorry, <laughs> just an analogy. But when I hear about it, I hear about some place where people think that they're better than me, and they're all hanging out together, excluding me, and I'm not good enough to be there. And, and oftentimes, we frame the gospel in that way, or people hear it that way. They hear that Christians, when they say there's only one way, they hear it as us saying, oh, we've got this country club where we're the only ones uh, who get in, and we're superior. But it's far from that. I mean, a country club is based on your status, but the gospel is based on the status of Jesus who welcomes all of us in. You get into a country club by paying for it, you paying for it at great cost to yourself. The way that you are welcomed into God's family is by Jesus paying for it at great cost to himself. A country club is a luxury. It's something that you don't need but it's just something that you have as a status symbol. But in the gospel, this is not a luxury. This rescue that God offers is something that we desperately need, like we needed Dr. Ebru on that day. Perhaps a better way to think about 
Jesus being the only way, is to think about the number 911, the phone number 911. It is an absolutely inclusive phone number and an exclusive phone number. Anyone can call 911. And if you call 911, it doesn't matter your background, what you've done that day, your, your, uh, your, your attitude, it does not matter who you are or what you've done, you can call 911 and help is coming. But there's only one number that you can dial to get that help. Here's the thing, I, I, I've proved the fact that 911 is the number that you can use to get help no matter who dials the number, right? When I was about 10 years old, I looked over and I saw my dog chewing on the phone receiver. Now I need, need to explain what a phone receiver is. <laughs> Back before there were cell phones, we, just imagine a giant cell phone that didn't have a cord to it. It was really revolutionary technology, but you could go about 20 feet away from the actual phone station and still talk on your phone. Well, someone had left the phone out and my dog was chewing on the phone receiver. It kind of sounded like he called somebody, but we just hung it up, figured, oh, that's a funny, strange thing. Shortly after that, the police showed up at our house. And I don't know what kind of mangled teeth my dog has, but somehow he dialed 911 with his teeth as he was chewing on it. And we're standing in front of the police trying to explain to them, no, no, there's no problem there. My dog just dialed 911. <laughs> they're looking at us like we are out of our mind. They come into, they're like, we're going to have to come into the house and look around. So they're looking around. They pull the kids aside. They're like, are you sure you're okay? Um, and finally, after much persuasion, we convinced them that my dog dialed 911. 911 is so inclusive that anyone who calls upon 911 is going to be saved. You will get the police who will come to you. And in the same way, the gospel is, is inclusive. It's, it does not matter your background or what you've done. If you call on 911, rescue is coming. But we all believe in the exclusivity of the number 911. There's only one number to dial to get a police or a fire truck. And it doesn't matter. You can't say, you know, uh, in my heart, I, I really believe that 311 is what you should dial. <laughs> or you can't say, you know, I think that's a little rigid for you to just say 911 is the only way. What about 711? It's, it's ridiculous. There's only one day, one way. And Christ is the cosmic 911 that God has given us. That if we call upon that name, we will be saved. We will be rescued. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call out to Jesus in prayer, if you put your faith in him, it does not matter your background because it matters about Jesus' background. He's coming for you and he will save you. And so as a church, we are going to hold on to the reality that Jesus is the only way, and we're not budging from it. We're not budging from it because it is absolutely good news. And it would be cruel to do otherwise. It would be cruel to stand outside of a burning house telling people to dial 711 or 311 when we know that there's only one number that brings rescue. Jesus is the only way, 
And he's the only one who can rescue us from our slavery to sin. The second point I'm going to make is that Jesus rescues us from the tyranny of idols. One of the major themes that we see in the book of Colossians is this is the theme of the rulers and the authorities. Now, you might be thinking, what are the rulers and authorities, right? Like, it sounds like one of those terms in scripture that you bump into, and uh, you're like, oh, I don't know what that means, I'm just moving on to the next page. But some scholars believe that it is uh, political forces. Um, Other scholars would believe that it's actually demonic forces. Uh, And the growing consensus is that it's kind of a combination of both, in that the rulers and authorities in Scripture, in the book of Colossians, are essentially these cultural forces that are good things created by God, but are being influenced by de- uh, demonic powers and are functionally creating whole new religions, whole new gods that people are orienting their life around, that they're bowing their knee to and giving their life to. And so what we see in Colossians is that it is a city that is filled with idols. Um, Idols uh, connected to technology, political ideology, sexual pleasure, all the good things that God created that are a good part of his world, but having become ultimate things, and people are like orienting their life around them. And so uh, there's a... There's a guy by the name of Joe that I grew up with, Joey J, who kind of illustrates some of the dynamic that was happening in Colossians at that time. Here's the thing you got to know about Joey J. Joey J was one of the most well-meaning people, most ambitious people, but he lacked all physical coordination. It, and it was bad news. He was going to injure himself constantly. He's the guy who declared that he could stand on a basketball and shut down seventh period because it slipped from under his feet and he hit his head. Joey J is the guy who um, decided that he figured out a way to ride his bike and avoid the white flies that gather around your face. He said, well, all you got to do is you got to get your hat and you cup it like this and then you just put your head down and ride your bike. He slammed into the back of a parked car and broke the back windshield. But Joey Jay, on our baseball team, was determined to hit a home run. He was convinced that somehow he could overcome his physical limitations and his lack of coordination and hit a home run. And the only thing he would need was the Louisville Slugger, a particular baseball bat that for some reason we all thought was the best baseball bat because we listened to it on rap songs and it talked about it. So we got the... Joey's dad one day, his father, buys him the Louisville Slugger. And Joey is convinced that this is going to make the difference. This is the thing that's going to allow him to hit a home run. And so what happens with Joey? Steps up to the plate. He's got a little moxie in his step in this game. I mean, he didn't do this, but for the story, you could just imagine him pointing to the picture. Picture, He swings the bat around a little bit. First pitch, we see him swing it harder than he's ever swung before. But then the ball comes around, or the bat comes around, and hits Joey J in the back of the head. Lays him out 
in the middle of the baseball field. And we're all staring at each other like, we don't know what to do. And how did that even happen, right? <laughs> and in Colossians, what you see is Paul's teaching on the rulers and authorities is much like that Louisville slugger baseball bat. That, that when you put too much hope, it's a good gift from your father. It's a good thing. But if you put too much hope in that thing, it's going to come back around and hit you in the head. But in Colossians 2.15, speaking about the work of Christ and the implications of what Christ has done, it says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is a, a beautiful image. It's an image of Jesus and his power actually stripping these creational things of the demonic power that is, is shaping them and creating whole new re religions around them, liberating people and allowing them to be free once again, free to not have to worship those things. The image uh, here, it's a really rich biblical image but it's actually the image of uh, when it says that, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. It's using this language that would bring to mind a Roman general's victory in those days. And whenever a Roman general would win a victory, he would come into town and they would throw this big parade and they would march this parade right through the middle of town. And as they were going through the town, everyone would see that the generals of the other army, the ones who had sought to enslave them and harm them, had been disarmed. They were a part of the parade, shamed in front of the whole city, and to expose them and to show that they have no more power over you and that you are free from them. And in so many ways, uh, what's, what's happening here is that Jesus is saying that he is the one who liberates through the powerlessness of the cross. He liberates us from the powers that seek to enslave us, from these good things that became idols, but that ultimately became slave owners. These good things that God had created for himself, but had been twisted into idols. And if you walked around those Greek towns, here's what you would see. You would see little temples, or not Greek towns, Roman towns. You would see uh, little temples set up to Greek gods and Roman gods. And people would bring their offerings to these little temples. And as they brought their offerings, they believed it would bring them favor. And most of these little temples were named after good aspects of creation, but then were ultimately deified. Things like technology, things like pleasure, things like politics. And the question is, is that just some old myths that some old Roman people believed? Or are we inadvertently converting to these other religions and not even knowing it? Are we taking good aspects of creation and orienting our life around it? And as we orient our life around these things, are these things enslaving us? And do we need Jesus to come and liberate us from the tyranny of these, 
these false gods. Let's, let's take a little review. Hephaestus was one of the gods in Colossae that they might have seen and been tempted to worship. This was the god of fire, metalworking, and stone masonry. Functionally, this was the god of technology. And the hope was that if they, if they bowed down and they made their sacrifices and offerings to Hephaestus, then they would have the technology in life that would bring them flourishing. They were putting their hopes in technology deified. Do we do that today? If someone was transported into our day and saw the way that we orient our lives around these glowing boxes, they would be convinced that we had idols. Whoa. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. Yeah, Father, we declare, Jesus, that you are king. We declare that you are the God above all gods. We declare that there is no name that is more powerful than your very name, Jesus. And we declare that you would, uh, we ask that you would be the one who is the very center of our life and give us uh, no fear and clearly proclaim that you are the one uh, with whom we give our full allegiance to. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not gonna let that stop us. We're gonna keep going. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. This morning, my wife texted me, and she said that she had a sense that God today was wanting to liberate people from some idolatry, from some bondage. She was in tears when we were talking this morning, and I didn't know what it was about. This is what it was about. Listen up, because what I'm about to say, the enemy does not want you to hear. <clears throat> All right. And those guys run pretty fast. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. The God of technology. How often have we put our hopes in the God of technology, in some technology that we have wanted to worship that claims our allegiance other than Jesus? So often we think if that next thing will be invented, then I will be okay. But often uh, we've trusted in things like nuclear uh, fission to bring heat to our cold homes, but it's only brought the threat of nuclear weapons. The internet promised to bring us together, but then ultimately it created a world of lonely people who spend more time looking at glowing rectangles than into the faces of the ones that they love the most. We are so grateful for the good aspects of technology. They are created by God and they are created for God. But how often are we looking to these innovations or a medical tool or a procedure to be our true deliverer? The good news is that God has provided the ultimate technology that brings us life, and it's the cross. In Colossians 1, 
where, where it says that Jesus is the creator and the reconciler of all things, and he does it through his cross. He makes right that which is broken through the only technology sufficient to do it, his death on the cross, where he dies for our sins and for the sins of the world in order that he can make things right. Ba Bacchus. Bacchus was the god of entertainment and pleasure. It was the god of wine, and that if you oriented yourself around Bacchus, then it would bring you the fullness of life. It would bring you the pleasure that you want. Do we worship the god of entertainment today? Let's think about this. Many of us come home, and we come to our Netflix account like a religious ritual each night. With greater devotion than we have to any scripture, we let it wash over us for hours, hoping that it will cleanse us of the, our worries and anxieties as we have a baptism in things like comedy specials and documentaries. We are often, when we're doing that, trying to avoid the deep sense of alienation from God, the deep sense that we are disconnected, that something's wrong with the world and something's wrong with us, and we stuff those questions down. We stuff those questions down by just more and more images and entertainment. And this ultimately is a religion of child sacrifice, as the average parent now spends twice as much time watching Netflix and having meaningful connection with children. Bacchus enslaves us, pulls us away from our children. But Jesus is the liberator. He is the good news. He is the one who's telling a better story than any Netflix original. He doesn't just provide momentary escape, but he provides access to the God who enters into our story, knows our pain, brings those questions to the surface, and then calls us into his story of restoration. Bacchus cannot rescue you, the God of technology, the God of pleasure. But Jesus is the God who delights in us and draws us into a better pleasure. And ultimately, there is a God that was the supreme God in Roman society. It was Caesar. It was Rome. It was the head of the political state. And you were fine to worship whatever gods you wanted as long as you bowed your knee to Rome, bowed your knee to Caesar. That was the ultimate God in that state. And it was interesting because there was this idea of the Pax Romana, that through Rome, there would bring peace to the whole world if people would just give their allegiance ultimately to Rome, to Caesar. And the question is, do we worship Caesar today? Do we worship the God of politics? Both on the left and the right, you see such zeal of conversion, zeal moving toward these these political ideologies, that, that zeal can only be described as a religious zeal, a conversion, a recentering where something else other than Jesus is our king. I mean, it's kind of funny, actually. You, who's heard of this new Garth Brooks thing that happened? Apparently, Garth Brooks, country music singer, he went to Detroit to do a country music concert, and he wore a... Uh, a Barry Sanders jersey, Barry Sanders, running back for the Detroit Lions. He's honoring the city. And it has the number 20 in it. That's the number that 
Barry Sanders wore. And a bunch of people got really mad at him because they thought he was saying Bernie Sanders 2020. And they just lambasted him. Yeah. I have a friend who everywhere he goes, he wears a red U of A hat. And that's a different problem. We'll have to deal with that later. But he had to stop wearing his favorite hat because people thought it was a Make America Great Again hat. The only way that, that you have that reaction towards that jersey and that hat is if those are symbols of a religious garb and that it is a statement of, of allegiance to a particular religion. Well, here's the deal. In our day, it, politics, political discussions, those things are good. It's good to have. But when we have allegiance, we put our trust, our hope in some of those things instead of Jesus, it creates a terrible division in the church. And it creates an ugly way of trying to solve the problems in the world. And those, those political movements never actually succeed. They never actually provide the answer. And as a church, we're calling people in this year to have a common table in, in this conflicted world, to be at the table from one another, to disagree with each other for sure, but to stay at the table from one another. And the only way we do that is if Jesus is at the head of the table and our full allegiance is to him. And then we can freely sit together and debate any issue we want because it's not our ultimate thing. I'll give you some diagnostic questions to let you know, to help you understand if that's your functional religion. When you see a problem in the world, is your first thought a political solution? Have you lost friendships, especially within the body of Christ, over political things? Have you disregarded scripture because it doesn't align with your political ideology? Do you turn to your favorite podcasts, TV channels, more than you do to the word of God? Are you sitting there saying, I wish he would shut up about this stuff? All diagnostic questions uh, that either say you're either conflict-averse or you might have an idolatry of politics. And all idols, instead, of they, at first they offer something to you, but then they end up taking from you. And we as a church, if we are going to thrive and to flourish, it only comes through union in Jesus and, and allegiance to him alone, not any of those idols. And as we press into him, yeah, as we press into him, he liberates us from the tyranny that these idols have in our life. I'll close with, with this. The story of Joey J didn't end that day. Eventually, he woke up. <laughs> eventually, he played another baseball game. And eventually... Uh, we were in this little, like, city championship game. Instead of Joey going up to bat, David Palmer, you know David Palmer's a good baseball player just by his name, <laughs> steps up to bat, and what does he grab? He grabs the Louisville Slugger. He steps up to the plate, and he makes contact with the ball, and it's a home run. We end up winning the game. And because of what David did on that day, Joey... Me, all of us on our team, and our connection with him and being on his team, 
experienced the joy of victory, of being champions. And in a very real sense, Jesus, in his hands, not David Palmer, but the son of David, is the one who rescues us. And as we're connected to his victory, there is a victory over the idols. There's a freedom from the idols. And he is the one who brings salvation. Rather than placing his hands on a wooden bat, his hands were pierced to a wooden cross. And as he took up that cross, he liberated us and freed us as the only one who could bring us salvation. It was his perfect life that he lived on our behalf. The death that he died as our substitute who stood in our place and went to bat for us. And it's in him rising from the dead that he shows that he's the only one powerful enough to rescue us from sin, Satan, and death and to be our victory. He was our rescuer on that day. Dr. Ebru was my rescuer on that day. And all rescuers are ultimately an echo of Jesus, the one who rescues us from our sin and from the idols that enslave us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are present here among us. And I sense right now that you are working in people, that there are some people who don't know you, haven't placed their faith in you, haven't called on the only name by which we are saved, the name of Jesus. And I pray that you would draw them today that you would impress on them just a, a real sense, Jesus, that you are here and you are calling them and that you have come after them and you have died for them. And I pray that today would be the day that they get new life. And they see that, Jesus, you are the only way that they can have life. And I pray for the many of us in here who even in this moment might be justifying or rationalizing some idol that we're trying to hold on to. Jesus, I pray that you would give freedom from that idol. I pray that you would expose it, bring it into the light, and show Jesus how much better you truly are. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.